the Diary of a CTO podcast. Sharing the secrets of successful CTOs. Brought to you by Trimor, the home of technology recruitment. Hosted by Guy Bevington. Okay, so Nick, thanks for coming. Thanks for being here with us today. Lovely to see you again. Um, Nick, I think it is fair to say that you have a very long and illustrious career as a tech leader. You've spent uh, a lot of your time in the gaming industry to date, so you've built up a huge amount of expertise in that domain. Um, you have been a CTO, a COO, and a CEO. So you've pretty much completed the C-suite in, uh, in, in your time, uh, very impressively. Um, You've also skillfully navigated the uh, the world of corporate mergers, and you've uh, sort of, as a leader, tackled the blending together and the kind of challenge of blending together both technology cultures and people cultures of, of different organisations. So there's really not a lot you haven't done so far, which is uh, always a great place to be when we're we're doing a podcast. We've got a lot of material, I'm sure we can uh, we can delve into. But um, difficult to know where to start. But I, I guess let's start at the beginning. Um, if you'd be so kind to you know to talk us through a bit about where it all began for you. Uh, in tech and uh, your, your journey to becoming a CTO, uh, that would be awesome. It would be my pleasure. So firstly, Guy, thank you. It, it was always a pleasure to meet you. And uh, I've very, been very much looking forward to doing this podcast. So thank you. You and me both. Thank, thank you for the opportunity. It's always great to see you. Um, what a great question to start with. Where did I start at the beginning? Okay. Um, little known fact that I actually qualified many years ago as an accountant. I did a um, business studies and I came out of business studies and I did accountancy. Two years into the accountancy qualification, I looked at it and I went, I don't think I want to do this for the rest of my life. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder Um, why. (laughs) I have nothing but respect for my CFOs in the past and people that do that job. Um... I don't know, it just wasn't for me. And mm-hmm. it, it sounds really strange. Can you believe this? I'm going to say this. Finance or IT, it's not really rock and roll, is it, Being a, it, working in finance? I thought IT was more rock and roll. So I can say that. Um, I finished the qualification and I went to night school and I went and got a computer science degree at night school and that's how it all started. Okay. And because I thought to myself... You know, I, I've got to get some for, formal qualification to be able to get into it. And I was working on, when I was an accountant anyway, I was kind of a systems accountant working on, you know, there was a lot of stuff around at the time, Oracle, um, ERP solutions and what have you. So I was kind of working on those anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I knew the, you know, I knew where the balance sheet was and the profit and loss and everything. But I just wanted to get a bit more cutting into code and that's how I started off in the IT and that's how I started my career was I moved out of accountancy into IT. And I have not regretted it one bit since. I absolutely love working in the industry. I think it's fantastic. Fair enough, fair enough. So would you say you've always had quite an analytical mindset and I guess, like you say, there's there's not a huge amount of similarity, but both quite numerate um, degrees. And uh, was that always a kind of a natural choice for you? You know, it's a really, you know, you just said to me at the time, I'd have said no. Um, I think you evolve as you, be, you as you get older, and you you evolve into different things and, and in different worlds. Um, 
I've always been very curious. I've always had a curious mind and I've always wanted to explore and do new things and experiment and try new things out. And I don't know, I just felt that there was more opportunity to be, one of a better word, creative. I can't believe I'm saying creative in terms of IT or finance. Um, but I, I was wanted to be more creative in what I was doing. I felt there wasn't a lot of room to be creative in the finance world mm-hmm. there's creative accounting we all know about that I also didn't want to get locked up yeah. um, so um, oh, I just felt there was a lot more opportunity to be creative I felt that it used a different type of brain pattern in a, in a more of a creative way and I it just really really appealed to me because mm. it seemed I have to say looking back at the time it was really difficult it was really hard and it's nothing like the world it is now. I mean, now there's a lot more of it, and it's a lot more in it. But developing nowadays is a lot, I would argue, a lot more, a lot easier, especially with um, GitHub Autopilot, something like that. We can talk about that later. Yeah. Um, but, you know, back in those days, you really did have to think, and you had to be, you know, there wasn't the memory that you have these days. You know, in those days, you really had to tune your programs. So it was a much, much more... Um, I don't know. I just felt it's a much more creative world to be, to be sitting in. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't understand that. Absolutely, I would say technology. You know, certainly where it sits in the business today, I think it is quite a creative um, industry. I guess you know, like the nuts and bolts, the coding. You know, that side of it. Okay, that could be argued. Not, yeah, it's more sort of analytical, numerical. But in terms of where tech has evolved to now and like I say with a lot of the tools and and you know dare I say AI which I'm sure will come on to it at Absolutely. some point yeah. that's that's evolving you know a lot of the biggest problems in the world are being solved by tech aren't they you Absolutely. Know, um, what what's really interesting I suppose when I started out mostly what you had was HR systems and finance systems really and then everything else was bespoke mm. and you wrote everything yourself um yeah nowadays there's a plus and if you look, think back to the old days of the mainframe, you couldn't be that. There was no room for any sort of um, use. Um, there were no, no such thing as a UX person. In those days, you know, it was very much, you mm. know, it was a 3270 emulation and away you went and you made it look as, you know, you made it look as obvious and as easy to use as possible. Um, I, th- I also think that IT's really, really evolved. And I think that when I started in the industry, it, very, it always invariably reported into the finance department. Mm. And I never really understood that because I always felt that when you looked around, it was underpinning everything that the business was doing. Yeah. And it was it was one it was the one area that was open to change. And not only was it open to change, but it was also open to influencing all areas of the business. Mm. And I always I know I always struggled with that for years. And I'm, I, one of the things I'm really pleased about now is that you see IT directors or Westman now called CTOs or CIOs really are on the board and I think yeah. most companies if they would want to admit it and I don't think many do but I think most country companies really are IT organisations now they're longer that you know that people could say they're service organisations but yeah. not you know what manages that service for them it's the IT yeah and without IT I think most companies this, this day and age would be absolutely be stuck there would be I don't know, who knows what they would do yeah, 100%. 100%. I think it's definitely been a, <clears throat> a really strong evolution in the last sort of, I'd say, 15 years, or probably certainly since I've been in <clears throat> in the job um, of recruitment where you know, tech is no longer the bolt-on, you know, auxiliary function in the business. Yeah. It is the driving 
force behind the business, you know, in a lot of instances where you get, you know, purely tech-focused businesses now, which obviously didn't exist, Absolutely. I guess, 20, well, years ago. You know, if you think about it, the managers back in, you know, many years ago were people who, oh, wish, well, we'll put them in charge of IT, they can go and sit away and do that. And remember, like, the it crowd, where they're all sitting in the basement. It's not like that anymore. No. It, we, you know, we're out there, we're at the forefront. And I think that IT really drives, it, drives the business forward, and anyone that doesn't encapsulate that really is stuck in the dark ages. You've got to have, the, you know, the CTO has to be a board member and is an important part of, what, of driving the company forward, mm. without a doubt. Absolutely, absolutely. Cool, so <clears throat> you went to night school, you uh, you crossed over to the dark side of, of tech and have never looked back. So where did your career go from that point onwards once you got your uh, you got your qualification? Well, so I was really a developer. So I was really, at the time, I was a, you know, I was a developer, developing programs, and then... Got this fan. I kind of, you know, oh, no one's listening to this, are they, guys? So I can say it. Um, <laughs> I hope they are. <laughs> you know, now I've said that, everybody from my career is going to plague me now. Oh, and I'm going to admit something here. I kind of recognise that maybe I wasn't the best developer. Okay. Bold statement. Oh. Um, I was. I was okay. Okay. I was okay. I could hold my own. Um, but I wasn't. You come across some people that are just absolutely brilliant. There's a couple of guys I think about I've worked with in the past who, you know, I just go and ask them a question and they're absolutely superb. Yeah. I was okay. I was I, I was average at best and i got to admit that. And I thought, you know, look, as a career path, I think there's more for me that there's more for me out there. And I thought that I could drive, you know, I didn't want to just be a developer forever. And that's not decrying the role of a developer because I think developers, for me, it's the heart and soul of the IT department. But I felt that, you know, I looked at myself and I looked at my, measured myself against other people. And I went, yeah, you're okay, but you're not. And, you know, I was honest with myself. So I had an opportunity to go, I, to, I got a job uh, of all companies. Labrooks offered me a job as a business analyst. Okay. And I took it. And, I, and it's a really, really interesting journey that I had because I, I only wanted to, I thought to myself, right, this is great. I'll do two years here, get two years' experience under my belt, and I'll move on. And I'll move, I might move into project management. I might move into whatever I may go. And Labbrooks was a fantastic launching pad for me. It was a fantastic opportunity. Um, at the time, um, it was a much, it was a very diverse company. I mean, I don't know if you remember. So it, Labbrooks was used to own all the Hilton hotels in the UK and the rest of the world, except for the USA. They owned all the Hilton hotels. Um, they owned a lot of property. And they also owned, if you remember back in those dark days, Texas DIY. Oh, yeah. So they had a really diverse portfolio of businesses. Oh, yeah. And there was a lot of sort of, you know, there was a, it's interesting because they had a fantastic training program there as well where they trained people and they brought people on. But you met people from all sides of the business as well. So it was really, really interesting. You met people, you, you know, you're encouraged to work with people from Texas. You're encouraged to work with people from Hilton Hotels. There wasn't a lot of similarity in what we were doing, but we all tried to work together in, in, in one way. And it was a really, really strong opportunity for me. And I stayed there for two years and I got the opportunity to move up and I became a sort of like a program, uh, project manager. And then I became head of development because I had a development background mm. and we, you know, and uh, I came from a development background. Fortunately, two years later, I became the head of development and it just, my career just progressed from there. And okay. when I look back on those days, I mean, it's, you know, it's really, it was really interesting because there was no internet at the time. It was retail only. 
And the retail, mm. t- you know, and a lot of the mis- the business mix back in those days was mostly, it was all horses, then there were dogs, and then you would have football, and then every other sport was known as other, and then numbers <laughs> came along. But it was really interesting. I mean, horse racing was the, the, the big part of the business, and it drove the business forward. And dog racing was only there. It's interesting. But dog racing was only there in the shops, and the reason why dog racing was there was to fill in the gaps between the racing. Really? Yeah, if you think about, if you look at a dog race and you look at the mm. times, they're all at, re- they're not at 3.15 or 3.30. True, actually, yeah. They're at 3.22. Yeah. Or at, okay, and the whole point is, the whole idea of the way that, way that the program is developed is that you, the dog racing back in those days was in there because there was little, so little content right. due to legislation and what have you. So there's so little content available to you that they uh, they used the dog racing to fill in the time between the horse racing, and it was a it was a filler. So that's why it was number two in the in the product set. But it was a fantastic business to to, to cut your teeth in. Um, the internet came along, and what a fantastic business! The internet because mm. there's no fulfilment. You haven't got to worry about you haven't got to worry about getting something delivered to someone's house or get them come, sending it back because it's the wrong size. You place a bet. It's on. It, you win. You get the money in your bank account. You lose. You don't get the money. Yeah. And it's a. Fun, it was a phenomenal business from that perspective. Yeah. And so one of the things that I did there. I mean, I did many things. Crikey, I did Y two K. That was fun. Um, uh, and after Y two K, we got the first. Ever, I got the first ever Labrooks Internet up and running. Um, Labrooks.work. It was actually called Bet.co.uk, but then it became Labrooks.co.uk and Labrooks.com. Okay. Um, I did a massive program of work in the retail estate where we replaced the whole of the retail technology. So if you think about the television screens um, that display all the information in the shop, a lot of the work, another couple of people, we, it was mostly RIP that developed this, that we developed a system which would broadcast to the shops content but also updating prices and work very closely with the marketing department to create a what we called a broadcast strategy. Okay. Because the whole idea was to make it sticky for people to want to stay in the shops and mm. make it like it was very much like a TV studio, like a production job. But I mean, that cost fourteen million. Wow. It was a big, big program of work, and that was just after Y two K. What was really interesting about that was, I have to say, I was really proud of this. I don't know if I should be proud to say I was late. I was only one week late on my initial estimate of getting it rolled out to two thousand plus shops. It was a really good program of work. That's Very, not about pre-agile days, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> no, absolutely. This is all waterfall, yeah. and this is all you know. Um, but what was really, what, what's really interesting is, here's the thing: if you go into a lab brick shop today, that's the same screen system. Twenty years later. Really? Wow! Talk about the, future-proofing your software. Good work, mate. I think. Well, it's interesting <laughs> because I still meet the CFO of the company that we bought some of the hardware from, and he just says to me. It's the best. He said, we made it to, he, what was the, he, his exact words to me were, he said, um, we built it too well. And I said, <laughs> I'd just start laughing at him every time. I think it's, a, you know, how many people can say that it's 14 million lasted 20 years? You know, you'd bite your Very hand few. off. Very yeah, absolutely. So it was, a, it was a phenomenal investment and it did really well. Um, and from there, once I'd had, I'd had that success, we, we developed our own channel, Labrooks TV, which was really interesting, which was yeah. yet to get supplementary content to put out there so that we were looking for, this is basically when virtual rate, virtual sports came into play. 
Oh, yeah. A lot more of that, a lot more numbers product came out. And then we were also looking for content. And so we would go and buy content from different providers across the world and try and put it out there. So French horse racing was really, really interesting. So we put French horse racing in across the shop estate. Okay. Um, didn't take a lot of interest for some whatever reason, whatever reason, but we got the pictures out there, we got the content out there. Racing from South Africa, all over the world, football from different countries as well. Um, and then I got the opportunity to go to Italy. Okay. And I went out with Labbrooks and I created Labbrooks Italia, Labbrooks.it, and we bought another company called Pianetta Scamese, which means Planet Bet. Um, and it's because of the way that Italian legislation works. You had to have a provider with the Italian um, government. And right. what we did was we, we created, we, in the end, we had about 400 shops and 400 corners. Corners like coffee shops where you could place bets. Wow. Very, very hard place to do business. But I had a fantastic time. I was out there for five years and it was brilliant. Absolutely enjoyed it. I learned so much that when I was out there. Mm. Fully embraced the culture. Um, managed to learn. It. I, had, I had about 40, 50 people working for me. I had the unions on my back once because I asked them to tidy up the office. <laughs> so, um, but... I did. I could speak. I could speak enough Italian to get it. It was. It's not an easy language because I, um, my experience of Italian is, I think the average Brit talks about three thousand words in their vocabulary, and the average Italian has nine thousand. So you can imagine. Hey, really? Oh, absolutely. They've got wow. a lot. They've got a lot more words than we have. I can tell you. <laughs> um, so, um, I managed to get my. I managed to bluff my way through it and it was a fantastic opportunity and of course what a great country to go and live and work in so uh, it was was excellent really really good fantastic so Italy um, you're out there for five years when you'd finished up there you'd obviously well I mean that's that's no mean feat I think to go to another country somewhere you'd never worked before presumably no I mean you know Labbrooks was an interesting company because what well, I haven't given you the other part of the story. What actually happened was, so in 2005, Labrooks, we were but we were then called Hilton, okay? So it was then, on the stock exchange, we were known, it was known as Hilton Group. And Conrad in the USA made an offer for the, all the Hilton hotels to bring it back under that one brand. Right. And it left Labrooks, and so in 2005, it left Labrooks on its own with, um, sorry, it didn't leave it on its own, but obviously Labrooks had a, a whole area to concentrate on, and it did have casinos at one point. We got back into casinos, which was really interesting as well. Um, and they decided to concentrate a lot more on, in the gaming sector. I mean, the the property gone. Texas DIY went to home base. Sainsbury's home base was sold to them in that in, during that time, or before then. Sorry, sorry. Let me you know a long time before. Um, um, it became, you know, the, the whole idea, the ethos then was to very much create a gaming company. And this was really at the forefront of what what they wanted to do. And it was, a, you know, it was a really booming time because if you think about it, the internet had come along. You know, it was, um, if you think about the early 2000s, um, the Blair government had come across. And I thought at the time the Blair government were going to do something very clever. When they, I don't know if you remember years ago that you used to have to pay tax on your bets you don't pay any tax on your right. bets because it's gross profit tax by the bookmaker mm. or the op- sorry the operator 
And I thought that it was basically to stop all the bookmakers going across to Gibraltar because uh, Labrix had a business in Gibraltar as well. Yeah. And it was a, I thought it was a smart move at the time, and it's a pity that they didn't expand it further because I think they could have made the UK a real gaming hub for the rest of the world. Um, you know, I, I've said this in the past. I've, I, I said it just recently on, a, on another podcast I did. Um, but if you look in the gaming industry, what's really, really interesting is that most innovation comes out of the UK. If there's any innovation, and I look at this and I think about in-play betting, I look at cash out, I look at bet builder. All these products have been driven by UK bookmakers. They've not mm. been driven from elsewhere. So there's a lot of opportunity there. And I kind of thought at the time that the Blair government were looking to sort of make it a UK hub mm. by dropping the tax. For whatever reason, it didn't come about. Mm. You know, um, but it was a, it's it's a lot of innovation comes out of this country in terms of what we do there. What do you think that is in the gaming sector in particular? Is that level of innovation that's taken place? Um, well, we if, if you think about it, really legalized legalized gaming has been in the UK since 1963. Yeah. So you know it, it, there was a pedigree of it, and if you look across the world, it's you know we, we've only just seen in America that it's opened up. We've only just seen in Canada that it's really opened up as well to, for online gaming, anyway. And so it's been it's been something which has been out. You know, that we've we've got we've been a lot more liberal with our rules and the way that we address it. Some people might not think that, but, you know, but there's a lot more opportunity to innovate. I mean, for example, um, when I was working in Italy, the Italian government would tell you what you could bet on, whereas we can bet, you know, the, you know, we had this infamous situation where Paddy, the guy from Paddy Power nearly got arrested because he put up a bookies board on the edge of the Vatican with the odds for the next Pope. <laughs> <laughs> and things like things like this, and so you know, there was like, <laughs> but you could never do that in Italy yeah. at the time. You know, the very much the the bet types and the um, and the mark. Sorry, the events and the markets that you could bet upon basically came from the Italian government. So it's really you know, there's I think so. In answer to your question, I think there's a lot more. It, we, we were a lot more liberal here, and the rules the rules change. I think even now, I mean, we just saw last week um, at the end of April. The government produced this document paper to rein in legislation yet again, and I think you know I think there's been some really good, interesting things in there about how the government want to address it, and they've got the gambling commission with have got a little bit more teeth mm. because they feel that maybe the operators have got a little bit out of control. There's an opportunity within that white paper for the operators to self-regulate, and I think they will mm. because they realise if they don't. Um, there's, you know, there's an awful lot of talk about problem gambling at the moment, mm. and I don't think anybody in the industry wants problem gambling at all. It's like yeah. nobody in the alcohol in the beverage business wants alcoholics. Yeah. Or you know, so I think that, um, but it's also an important revenue generator for the government. Mm. So they've had to test, they've had to walk a tightrope. The government. Yeah. Make sure. Sorry, I digress completely. In answer to your question, I think it's because we've had a long-standing liberal sort of approach towards gaming and it's been well accepted and I think it's why we've got that that innovation in this country yeah I think a lot of other people have been stopped by the regulations that they're limited by yeah never thought about it like that before but that's a very very good point um so yeah we're at the point so you've you've gone to Italy as I say no mean feat to, to kind of get 400 retail um you know um, offerings out and um what brought you back to the Interesting. In the UK. Well, it's 
The success was also our defeat because one of the problems that you had in Italy was you had to reapply for the licenses. So you had to pay a fee for the license, and the licenses only lasted, and I think I think it was seven years, it might be less. I can't, remember, can't exactly remember. Yeah. And Labrooks took the opportunity to sell the business. It was hard work. You couldn't guarantee that you could keep the shop in where you wanted to have the shop. So we sold Same. it. We sold it back to an Italian company when we were out there, and so I oversaw the sale. And as this, as uh, as part of that process, and I came back, and one of the one of the disappointing things for me was that when I came back, there wasn't really a job for me. The world had changed an awful lot in the UK. Five years out of head office was a different, you know, it was a completely different world. Mm. The CTO had changed. He'd gone back to Australia, and it was just a different environment completely. Um, and at that same time, uh. This little company called LVS asked me to go if I'd be interviewed and I went and saw them and it says so transpired that they were backed by Conseil de Jure, the French National Lottery, who happened to, who are at the moment, they're probably the, the best kept secret in the gaming industry, but they're, they turn over 19, oh, I think the last numbers were 19 billion euros a year. <laughs> That's obscene, isn't it? So they're a massive organisation. And what they'd done... um, LVS LVS was an interesting company. They'd been... They they were another one that was a bit of a secret, but you knew about them if you were in the gaming industry. And they developed a system for BetVictor. Okay. But it was a tier one high-volume transaction engine written in Java, and it was a very... with an Oracle database... Good technology base. I know some people listening to this are saying, oh, that's a bit backward. You should be using all the latest tools. And it's, it, I'll tell you why it's fantastic. When I was the CEO of that company, I hadn't had a P1 outage. The last P, well, when I, from when I left, the last P1 outage we had was um, in the World Cup in 2018, what I would call a P1, not what the customers, you know, the customer would say. In, so you know what some people are like, I can't log in. It's a, no, it's not yeah, a yeah. P1, it's you've forgotten your password. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm sorry, that's not yeah. a P1. But, you know, and a, you know, to me, a P1 is we can't do business, we can't take bets or we can't take money. Mm. You know, not that something might not be working. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, proper. So, you know, it was a really very strong, reliable system. Anyway, digress again, because what happened was the French market had opened up. Now, FDJ have 30,000 retail outlets where they offer fixed odds betting. Wow. And the internet had opened up and allowed them to have an and they wanted an internet site, they were looking around, but they wanted to own the software. So what happened was they bought LVS and I was kind of brought in to help them organise it. it when I first joined LVS, it's a great company, fantastic CEO I worked for, a guy called Simon, who was a great guy. It always made me smile, always made me laugh. I used to call him Lord Ordish because he went to Harrow School and he was as posh as anything. Um, but he was a brilliant chap. And he, he would, his whole ethos was if he had 50 developers, he could rule the world. Um, <laughs> so you can see I was brought in to sort of bring him, not to bring him, bring it back to earth maybe, and just say, maybe if we just finish this piece of work first. Yeah. 
you know, then we'll look at world domination afterwards. It was kind of one of those things. And we wanted, what we wanted to do, it was about organising and making sure that they concentrated on delivery, making sure that they could, you know, rather than starting new projects, because he was a really much, he was a technologist and he still is today. He's, I saw him at Christmas and he was, he took, very kindly took me to, 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 to lunch and we we're having a great chat and he's mining Bitcoin and he's, but he, he, he loves technology and, he, whilst he was a CEO because he was the founder, he didn't really want to be the CEO. He just wanted to be coding. Mm. And so all those things kind of came my way. And so I did a lot more looking after and the organising and making things happen and gelling it together and just, you know, come you know worked with him in the strategy. And I think we were very successful. Great company to work for because what was great about it was that we had about 30 people there when I first went there. And we won a couple of big contracts and we grew and we were successful. But it was like a startup. It was all the fun of a startup, but with the backing of a 19 billion euro organisation behind you. That's a pretty nice combination. Yeah, so of course it was easy because um, you knew that they would, you know, they were there, they were going to back it, they were using your software. They were. And the other thing as well, you know, anyone in the gaming industry will know that if once you've bought a sports book, to move away from a sports book is blooming difficult because yeah. it's, you've got so many customers and the migration task is a, it's a big job to do. Mm. People do do it. Now, we've done it. Customers in the past come to us. But it is a big thing to do. And it takes a lot of, I think the word kahunas is the word, but it takes a lot of those to, uh, to make you do want to go and do it. But we were very successful and we went along and we... We, we moved forward and Simon left because he decided to go and do new things and we had a French CEO come in. He he was a nice guy, really nice guy, but he struggled with the business. He didn't understand the business and he did his three-year tenure and after that he left and I became the CEO. Fair enough. Yeah. Stepping up into the, into the, the hot seat, I guess. Yeah, and we grew the company to about 120 people. Yeah. So we got enough contracts, we won contracts around the world. Very, very interesting time for us, very exciting time. And we grew the business and it went really, really well. Very proud of that achievement. Excellent. How did you find that transition from a CTO into the CEO role? What parts of your arsenal of skills do you feel you kind of had to sharpen or, or any areas you had to sort of work on more, say, than in the role as a, as a, a CTO? Well, oh, do you know what? I thought to myself, thank goodness I can read a balance sheet. <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't all to waste. Yeah, it, my, my, it, it, was, it was interesting. I think what, I've, what I found, what I've always thought is what's really important is about getting the culture right. Mm. Okay, and when I, when I took over this role, what was important to me, when I joined the company... Um, it was a great company to work for. There was a lot of fun, a lot of laughter. And, you know, I, was, I had to do it in a softly, softly approach to try and get them to concentrate on doing the right thing. And I've never changed that approach. It's about creating the right culture, creating, creating transparency, you know. So, you know, it's about making sure that the customer is at the forefront of the way that people think. Mm. It's about having transparency, and if you have transparency, then you you know you you're transparent. Then it's a lot easier. Um, 
for people to have those conversations. You don't get that backbiting. You don't get that. Of course, you're going to get people that moan, but you've got that transparency. You've tried to be honest and open with people. Asked a question, I would always encourage open questions all the time, you know, and very much turn talk to people. And I think that's a, you know, that's that's a really, really important thing. Mm. And it was also about focusing on the end product and making sure that if we were going to do something, we finished it. Yeah. And you and you keep that. And I think that we had that kind of culture and that ethos that was created. And what that was good. What was good about that was that we didn't have a high turnover. Bad for companies like yours. But <laughs> great for people like me because I could keep some consistency in the people that we had. And we had some really, really talented people. But still, some of them are still there. Some very, very talented people and individuals. But it was about getting the culture right. Mm-hmm. And about, you know, that was the thing that for me was important. And, I you know, I, I hear so many people, you know, these days talk about culture and you, you see these toxic environments. People talk about culture, but they create a toxic environment. So how yeah. can you have it? And I think as a leader, it's down to you as a person to be able to lead by example. And if you're transparent and you you appreciate transparency and you say, and you don't play that blame game, you say, okay, well, this is what we're going to do. And if we make a mistake, let's, it's that old saying, let's fail fast, fail fast. Yeah. And it, it's not a matter of failing, it's about learning. Yeah. And if you get that into the mindset and get people to think about that, then you can start to move forward and you can start to, you know, you can, you, you have, it's nothing worse than going into massive thing of office politics and trying to sort that out. And let's just go and sort this out. This is how, this is how I work. This is how I'm going to be. My door is always open. Come in whenever you want. You might not like the answer, but I'm going to be transparent with you and I'm going to be honest with you. Mm. And this is a way we're going to work together. Yeah. This is what we're going to do. And if I'm not happy, if things aren't going, look, I'm going to set objectives very clearly for you about what we need to do. If we want a new contract, we need to deliver it by a date. Yeah. I expect you to meet, you know, this is, you know, but I'll, I'll talk it. And it's about that sort, those sorts of things. And I think one of the things that, I, that we worked very hard on is to create the right culture. And one of the things that we did, because we were a startup at the time, when I became the CEO, we had no what the French would call a social plan. And what, what they mean by that was there's no pension. Right. There was no gym membership. Mm. There was no, um, you know, the holiday entitlement was poor, the sickness scheme was poor. And we worked on all of those areas because we knew that we weren't attractive. Right. And we knew that for, to keep people, you know, you had to have those things. And so the pension was a re- you know, was really important mm. thing to bring in. We improved the holiday scheme. And we we brought um, we actually paid people um, a transport allowance, but obviously the obvious ones like um, childcare vouchers. We brought those in, all those things, but they all add up to stickiness to make people want to stay, yeah, and to show people that you care. Absolutely. And of course, we didn't have that mm. for a number of years, so that was a you know it was something it was important to get that in. And once people see that you're trying to do that thing, yeah, and it's added because they haven't had it before. Oh, no, I'm going to get three extra days holiday a year. Yeah, 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 don't worry. Yeah, yeah. And it becomes a, you know, it becomes a much, it's it's, it's a lot easier. Yeah, So, Absolutely. you know, so, you know, I, I was I was lucky because I didn't have to work too hard with the owners to get that across because it was, they were they were very supportive of, you know, the point was I was saying, nobody has this. Yeah. And, you, you know, we're not going to pick up, we're in London, the hardest place in the world to recruit tech staff, we're not going to get it if you don't start offering these sort of benefits to people. Mm, absolutely, yeah, yeah. What what I like about 
uh, you know, seemingly your your leadership style, which I totally agree with. You know, there's this this big push on transparency, and I think that is a very very good uh, point to make as as a leader. I think it's the, the the number one priority I see as a leader, and I just look at myself in the situation of you know trying to trying to run, grow, and scale the business, is every there has to be that like you just said there with with your sort of uh, you know, peers alignment around okay what is it we're actually trying to do because I really think that's where a lot of companies go wrong they just sort of assume that everyone in the business knows the mission of the business and yeah. and I think in this sort of world that we're in now the kind of transparency around purpose you know and what is it we're actually trying to achieve and what's my role in in this mission is becoming more and more front and center and I think actually it's been kind of um, exacerbated a little bit since COVID. Um, you know, I've seen definitely a, a sort of almost an awakening in candidates of you know an awareness of what they're doing on a daily basis and the, the yeah. company they're working for and you know what what is our mission? What do we do? What's my part? And all that kind of thing. And I think the, the biggest role now as, as as a leader is that people actually understand you know who are we? What are we doing? What's our mission? What are our values? Absolutely. Um, and and like you say, once there is that transparency, I think you you can then sort of you know not rule with a, an iron fist. That's not the right term, but you can be a little bit more um, I think assertive in terms of you know like you say you hold people to account of, you know, because everybody sort of understands their piece that they're playing within that that bigger picture. Abs- um, you know, absolutely. I mean, look, I think you know this to me we. I mean, your industry is infamous for it. I mean, you know, the toxicity that can be created by people. God, yeah. I've heard of recruitment companies, now. you all know this, I'm sure you're going to tell me what it's called, where you have to stand up until you've made a phone call or got got, got a... Power hour. There we go. Yeah. 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 So, you know, and there's what what I've... Learn. I, it's never been my. That, I don't. I don't ever think that's ever been my style. No. Okay. Um, probably get a load of people commenting on this now and saying, "Oh, it was exactly what it was like." Anyway, look. No, I <laughs> what I to me, I always think that you're only going to get the best out of people if you create a relationship with them and you work with them. And you're not going to get the best out of people by shouting and bawling, and and, no, no. and walking around scowling at them all the time. You know, it just creates a toxic culture. And that isn't the best. And, you know, look, we will, it's, you know, I think if you went back 30 years ago, you can all see those type of bosses walking around and what have you. But there's no place for it in the modern workplace. Mm. You know, you've got to treat people with respect and you have to realise that, you know, there are other things in people's lives. Mm. And, uh, yeah. and, and, and it, you know, you've got to get the work as, you know, I'm, I'm probably the wrong person, I, you know, about the work-life balance because I've, really enjoy working um it's a you know it's a big thing for me um but i think at the same time i think you have to appreciate that not everybody's like me mm-hmm. and uh, you have but you've got to find a way of getting the best out of people yeah. and i think the transparency you know I, what i've always tried to do is i just don't want inner factions fighting against each other so you don't want the, the testers fighting with the developers fighting with product owners you know it's it's about creating harmony yeah yeah. and trying to move forward. And I know the bigger the organisation, the harder it gets. Absolutely. But yep. at the same time, it should be, you know, I, I'm, I wonder how many leaders really think about this in that level of detail. Mm. I hear a lot of people talk about it, but um, do they really practice what they preach? Yeah, 
Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I think it falls back down to that word alignment, doesn't it? I think Absolutely. we were talking about. And yeah, one of the biggest things for me, I mean, you're dead right. The, 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 the recruitment is infamous for just very toxic cultures of, you know, really putting profit above people. Um, yeah. And when I started True North, of course, I wanted the business to be profitable. Of course, I wanted it to be successful. But the culture was the most important thing for me to get right yeah. first and foremost. And it's quite interesting you talk about, you know, the kind of uh, the social plan or the benefits plan. I mean, recruitment historically is horrific when it comes to any kind of benefits. You know, pension is usually absolutely bog standard pension. Yeah. Not a lot to speak of by way of any of the perks or benefits or that kind of thing. But when I started the business, even as a very early stage startup, the the, the most important thing for me that I could include in the package is um, healthcare. I wanted to include yeah. private healthcare for everybody that came in because it was, you know, we started literally just at the, you know, as the pandemic hit. So it was quite topical at that time anyway. Um, but to me, it kind of as the, as the MD of the business, I wanted to send that message that, you know, as cheesy as it may sound, I care about you as a person. That's the most important thing is actually that you're okay, you know, your, your health's okay. Um, and I think... It, that not subliminally because I don't mean to do it underhand, but I think when people feel that they are genuinely being valued as a person rather than you know a number on a piece of paper, which is unfortunately you know in a lot of a lot of recruitment companies the way people feel. Um, I do think you know, like you say, you get not necessarily the best out of people, but people turn up every day wanting to contribute. You know, Absolutely. wanting to do a good job. And Absolutely. I think. Um, if, you, if you, you've got that combined with the clarity of the mission and, and that kind of thing, that's when you know, special things can happen, I think, and um, you know, when you truly can achieve some kind of scale. Um, yeah. So, um, it, it, it's, it, you know, you, you, you're absolutely right. And, I mean, I, you know, that's why they're getting that, what, what the, they called the social package was right, so, so important because private health was part of what we offered. You know, not everybody opted to take it because they realised they had to pay tax on it. Sure. But at the same time, you know, it was there as an option. Mm. And so you put all these things together and you start to look at it and you've got quite an attractive plan coming, you know, you've got a, you're getting quite an attractive workplace to come yeah. and work in. And, uh, yeah, like I say, I think I, I can't emphasise enough the whole point about transparency. I think that is so important. Absolutely. Okay, cool. So, CEO, um, next step on the journey, where do we go from here? Oh, so... <clears throat> FDJ had a lot of ambition, so um, FDJ was obviously state-owned many years um, from when it for, from its inception, and it was originally started off for um, very much like the um, poppy appeal in the UK, and it was created for injured soldiers in the First World War. Yeah, that's the basis of the lottery. And it was very much owned by the French government, and what they what they did was they put the money in, and the French government decided where the money would be spent. Um, very forward thinking company had a female president, Madame. Uh, she uh, she was a Madame president. She was uh, so very forward thinking from that perspective. Very much feminine issues at the front forefront of the. You know, there was no place for uh, it, old school tactics, as we might call them, or, you know, it was very much a forward-thinking company and it was, you know, it was... it was. Um, <laughs> I was very impressed by the ideas that they came up with when I when I was working there. Anyway, what they did was they, they'd obviously wanted to own the software, they owned our, the, us as a company, and to be 
first five years they left us alone and then they start to show a lot more interest in us and stopped, we start to grow as the business grew. And they IPO'd in 2019 and at around about the same time they realised that they wanted to do more international expansion and, and I can my understanding of this was that they were told, you know, if they look at the growth in the business, they're only going to get the retail price index increase in terms of lottery sales, um, which is it's not going to really grow their business in any great shape. So what they wanted to do was to, they had this, and I would say that, you know, um, my product, the sports book, ABP, was, I'd say it was the jewel in the crown because it was a very, it, it's a it's a high-volume transaction engine. We could take 500 bets a second. Wow. We were very, very, you know, a very good system. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was very proud. I, I have to say, I, even though it wasn't my, you know, I was very proud of what we achieved with it and we, the things that we did with it because we, we continually evolved it as it went along. Um, and what FDJ wanted to do was to open up into some sort of B2B business and they wanted to get into international expansion. So they looked around and they bought Sporting Group. Sporting Group basically is, most people will know it as Sporting Index, which is the spread, oh, yeah. bet, spread betting side of the company. Yeah. But little known fact is they, well, it's not a little known fact in the in the gaming industry, but they also have a data feed, which is called Sporting Solutions. And what Sporting Solutions data feed does is it gives you, um, which is all the markets, oh, sorry, all the events, sorry, I shouldn't say matches because that's wrong because not everything is a match. Um, all the events the markets for those events but they've also have a pedigree as they quite proudly say in pricing because obviously their whole business from a b2c perspective they were historically had very strong trading background and they always had the you know they when i when i think back to when um sporting index were first in the industry and funny enough Bizarrely, I actually, when I was at Labrooks, I actually built a spread betting system for Labrooks called Labrooks Sporting Spreads, but we sold it to IG Index after two years because we couldn't make any money out of it. Okay. Um, but it went to, anyway, so I had, a, you know, I, had, I, did know all, I did know all about it. Um, FDJ went and bought it, but it, I think they predominantly bought it for the, the B2B arm because the ambition was to spread that whole international business. So if you think about it, what they then had was the whole, from a sports book perspective, the whole one of a better way of putting it, the old Microsoft saying soup to nuts. Mm. So they very much had the content in terms of the the data for the events, for the markets, and for the pricing of those markets. They could then feed that data into a sports book. Of course, our sports book would had a trading platform. It had, um, obviously, it accepted and settled bets. It had a player account management solution. It had a front-end solution that we developed as well. So it was a very, there was an awful lot of components within that. Mm. And then on top of that, you had the trading expertise as well. Mm. The traders from sporting could actually manage the liability. So you then had a compelling proposition yeah. when you went out there to go and, because there's a lot of B2B businesses out there and some people, you know, I've been around the world, I've been very fortunate, I've been around the world in this job. And some people, you know, want you to take over a whole managed service for them. Mm. and pay you the fee to manage the service. Some people want to do the trading. Some people want to manage the front end but give you the rest. So what we could do is we could give, we could cut and paste whatever we wanted to do because we had everything. Yeah. The whole idea was we wanted to be able to roll it out across, um, you know, wherever we could give them as much as any, anybody. And one of those areas that we did it was, it was um, 
the Canadian market, obviously there's a lot of move, talk about the USA at the moment, or it has been. Um, the Canadian market also opened up and won the bid for the Ontario Lottery Group, okay, okay which was a massive, yet again, another large organisation. And if you look at Ontario, it's... Um, in terms of if you look at that and the United States together, Ontario, I think, is the fifth largest, would be the fifth largest state. So it's a big right. opportunity. Anyway, we won the um, Ontario Lottery Group, OLG, a site called ProLine Plus, and that's live, and that was for retail and online and um, uh, app as well. And then on top of that, we did, and it, it, this is an, just goes to show you, you know, the, uh, go to show you how strong the team I had um, in the old F FDJ gaming solutions team was we there was a failing project in the, the Al Al Alberta gaming lottery and drug board because obviously marijuana is allowed to be smoked in Canada yeah so it all comes under control under the regulation and it was a fail they had a failing project for a sports book um, they came to us and said, "Can you do it in three months?" And we did. We got a sports book live, and we, you know, we we did a little bit of a lift and shift, yeah. but very much. <clears throat> sorry, excuse me. A little bit of a lift and shift, but very much got something live in three months. With a, you know, and if you look at the two websites, Play Alberta and Proline Plus, they look completely different. Mm, wow. But it's it just goes to show you what you can achieve with high caliber of staff that are motivated to do the right thing. Really big achievement because I was very, very proud of that. Absolutely, uh, of, of what of what the guys did, and it was just a fantastic, you know, a fantastic opportunity for us. And we got, you know, we had we had an, a genuine interest in North America, yeah. which is a big, which is a big marketplace. As you can see, it's growing and growing all the time. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Well, it sounds like you like a challenge. Um, <laughs> yeah, do you know what? I'm one of these people, guy. Um, I run towards the fire. I don't run away from it. <laughs> I usually start the fire. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not gonna, yeah. Um, yeah. We, you've been known as the fire starter. Yeah, I'll say this. Yeah, yeah. No, um, but no, it's one of those things where I'd, I, yeah, I'm not afraid of a problem. I'm quite happy to, you know, look. What what is important to do is to not lose your head and to think about it and look at it and say, look, this is everything's resolvable. You just it's about how you address it and how you manage it mm. and how you cope with it. Yeah, and you know how you deal with it, and I think that's what the that's what's really important. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, if you can if you can garner people in the right direction, then you have you know that's half the battle is bringing people with you. Yeah. You've got the right culture, people will go that you know will work late at night and they'll do that go that extra yard to make it happen for you. Yeah, totally. And I think it's going back to what you were saying earlier about framing culture insofar as framing failure as it's okay to fail. You know, um, and like I say, it's learning from when things don't go in the right direction. Um, because that certainly within recruitment, you know, I look at the uh, the kind of the, the culture that's created in a lot of those more draconian kind of stereotypical recruitment companies, and it, it there is just a, an inherent fear of you know failing or doing something stupid or whatever because of the you know the management style of a lot of old school recruitment managers. Yeah. Um, and it's just it's so crazy because you think about well it's like any job really but in recruitment I look back over my career like 70-80% of my learning has been going wrong yeah, it's do, doing something wrong and then yeah. uh, learning the right way to do it as a result of that and it, it really does I, I believe you know probably make a lot of people exit the industry um, you know 
that have a real innate ability yeah. to do the job, a real talent, um, you know, just far too early because of the way, you know, they're, they're managed and the, the kind of pretty toxic cultures that are created around failure. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I totally disagree with you there. When you think about it, when we're successful, we don't really think about it, do we? We're successful, we just go, I was good, look how good I am. Mm. And I think that in anything that you do, you should always take a little bit to reflect on what, what you did right and what you did wrong. And, yeah. um yeah, I always think that, you know, you can't continue to fail because that's obviously you're going to go nowhere because, um, you know, you have stakeholders. You've got to, you know, we all we all work for someone. So you've got to, you've got to keep the stakeholders happy. Yeah. But at the same time, you need to say, why did we fail and what, what do I need to do? And whether it be your product, you know, whether you failed in a, in a bid to try and win some business or whether you failed to try and implement. You know, and these are all things over the years that I've looked at. I mean, I, I had a particular problem with the sports book um, where I couldn't win a contract because I was too expensive. And what I did was I worked, I looked at the area and I came up with a four-pronged strategy to, re to readdress the product because I knew we were too expensive. And one of the areas that we were too expensive was on the front end. And what I developed was a product, we called it widgets, and basically they're key components of a sports book, whether you have the navigation bar or the um, competition, and then you drill in a competition, it goes down to the market level for that match, yeah. and you put the market into the bet slip, and the bet slip would be another widget. Anyway, we ended up with about 45 widgets. But the reason why we were able to do Play Alberta so easily, these were products that we had which worked to the API, Oh, okay. But all you needed was some, if you had someone who could do CSS, mm -hmm. you could restyle them to your heart's content. They worked on both the app and on the on the web. So, so all of a sudden, because I, you know, I'd very often get caught with the marketing people who would be saying, "Oh, it's the wrong pixel. You got that wrong." And then when you change it, you go back again. And I thought I've got to get out of this cycle of just going round and round and round. Mm. I've got to give it so that if you've got, you know, and at the time as well, there was a lot about people wanting ownership. Mm. Oh, okay, you only had CSS, but anything, you know, look, you can style it however you want, but you can't change the for you can't change the API because yeah, yeah. it's a product, and we're going to push this across our customers. And it was really successful. Because it dropped money out of the business. It, it dropped, it gave me two things actually. Because one is for some customers, it was provided as a rental. So I got reoccurring revenue, which was something that I was looking to achieve. Yeah. But at the same time, it also put the power back into, in some other people's, it's three pronged really. It put the power back because people believed that they had some ownership. So they owned the front end so they could restyle it to their heart's content mm. using copies of the widgets. And it, but it also, me, it speeded up our delivery. Mm. Because it took it took money out of because we weren't recarving everything from scratch. We weren't handcrafting everything from new. We had we had a very very good strong start of a ten. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I guess uh, saving saving time is always going to uh, streamline any delivery, isn't it? Absolutely. So, uh, We're going to do other things and build other things and improve things. So, yeah. yeah. Cool. Okay, well, I'd like to kind of draw to a close by um, asking a bit about your management style when, you know, you're, you're, you're sat as the leader of a business, you've got two joining entities, yep. essentially. Um, and 
there's a lot of moving parts, obviously, from a, a technology point of view. You know, how do you unify two tech yeah. stacks, but also from a, a, a company um, and and like I say, every company out there will have a very unique culture. So how do you actually, from a people culture point of view, you know, find the, the common ground and unify those? So, so what sort of, um, you know, talk us through what approaches you took there um, to, to enable that sort of smooth transition between the businesses when they merged. Yeah, I mean, it, that, it, that was a tough gig because um, sporting in the past had been owned by venture capitalists and we all know that venture capitalists want to sweat the asset and so there had been an awful lot of sweating of the asset um, what I what we did was by going in there it was about making sure that we would work we could work with people and it's the same approach again having that transparency trying to talk to people bring people on board trying you know getting them getting it across to them but also looking at what was working and what wasn't working and you know i wasn't afraid we had a project which was failing which had a number of contractors on it and i wasn't afraid to cut those contractors because i couldn't see what they were doing mm. nobody could explain to me what they were doing and so you know i cut them and there was no change. Everybody told me it would be a disaster. But I, you know, I it just looked as if when it was demonstrated to me, it wasn't. So it's about going in there, looking and understanding and, and just listening to what people are saying, understanding what those pain points are, taking all those things on board, trying to understand what's working and what's not not working. I mean, for, you know, for as, as coming in there as the CTO, what was really important for me was to understand the technology stack. Mm. And, you know, one another thing that I realised that I had to do was to go through a process of rationalisation as well mm. because there was a plethora of tools and you wanted to make sure that you took away those tools. You didn't want to have... You wanted to get as much of a common base of tools as possible. Yeah. And, um, you know, there was also a keenness, you know, you get this with developers as well, that they want to be... They want to bring in the latest technology and you sometimes you have to say, well, hold on a second... You know, and I've got to be honest with you, I, I looked at this and I did a little exercise and I looked at this and I went, because one was, we, we were an open source site and, you know, and um, Sporting were a .NET site, but there were lots of other fringe activities going on in the Sporting. But you looked at it and you went, okay, so what are we going to, we're not going to be able to move from open source to .NET or we're not going to move .NET to open source. These are core systems that are written in these. We're just going to, this is the way, this is the way the life is. But I did look at it to see what, you know, you know, look at other, look at other, um, because there was a, a, a big move for other products to be brought, other software development tools to be brought in. And you look at it and you go, I, I did a little exercise and I went, how many jobs are there for Java developers? Thousands. How many jobs are there for .NET developers? Thousands. How many are there for Rust developers? How many are there for Erlang? And you see, and it all becomes a little bit niche. Mm. You say, okay, if I'm going to have any, what I've got to do is have some success here. I can't change technology stacks here at all. Yeah. This is going to be a. This is a five. 10-year project away. What I need to do is make sure that I can get the right bit. And then you look at do the salaries as well and you see that the salaries are probably £10,000, £20,000 cheaper for a mm. Java developer or a .NET developer than they are for some of these emerging technologies. Yeah. And you have to be really, really careful. So that's, you know, you those are things that you do as well. Rationalise the technology. I, 
I would do, I'm an all hands with people and I'd encourage anonymous questions because I've not, sometimes you notice that people won't ask a question if you want them. I mean, one of the ones that made me laugh was I talked about one of the things I brought in was change control because I recognised that we had a real issue with quality. And I'll explain why in a minute. But I went and I, so I brought in change control and I explained why I was bringing change control into the business and that it had to be a change board and I sat on the change board and made sure that I was there. Because there's no point me pontificating about change control and then just not turning up to the meeting mm. and, and leaving it in the hands of everybody else. And one of the things I said was I said, look, as far as I was concerned, I can't look at everything, but the QA people going to be my ears and eyes and if they're not happy with it go live mm. straight up comes anonymous question so you're blaming the QA people are you you're going to blame us for not making something go live not what I said what I said was you're empowered mm. to help me and it's just the way that people you can see the culture the way the culture was in the past mm. and what you've got to do and how you've got to win it over and say no 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 this isn't that what I'm saying what I'm saying to you is I need you to help me I mm. can't look at this if you're telling me it's not good enough to go live the quality isn't there it shouldn't go live yeah. you're empowered mm. you're empowered to do the right thing mm. do the right and it's about changing that mindset from changing it into a negative into a positive yeah and these are the sorts of little things you have to dig away at mm. to get to get out of the way uh, we, we basically changed it we've got 24 7 support in we got the change control in and I wrote a document after about four, three or four months. I called it the manifesto. And what I basically did was when I brought the companies together is that one of the things that FDJ are very keen on was making sure that people had objectives. Okay. Now, IT people are notoriously bad. If you go to any IT department and ask them to give you five objectives, you probably get two each person. This is easy. I'll give everybody three. Everybody in the company would have three common objectives. So the manifesto was very much built around stability, so making sure that our making sure that we had uptime. We wanted to get the uptime up. It talked about quality in terms of producing high value and high quality in what we did. And you know, and, and two including within that was the delivery. The third pillar of this manifesto was performance. Because if you're working in a in gaming sector, much like the financial services sector, if you make you can't have any lag. You've got to have low latency systems because you're talking about real time transactions. Mm. So it's also thinking about having perform having these things at the forefront of your mind that you're thinking about stability. You want to make something stable that it stays up. You want to have reliability. You need to have performance. And so I created three objectives for everybody and so everybody had a common objective and including myself in that so we either we either we either succeeded together or we failed together mm. but it was about making sure that you got the common message and it, so you know it's also you could also hear the relief and i did the all hands of people you could hear almost hear the, the sigh of relief that they only had to do two objectives they didn't have to come up with five and it made the whole <laughs> object i joke aside but it's about making sure that everybody's on the same page mm. you know and it was about presenting that manifesto and saying look this is as we've, we're joining the company together this is my vision for the future 
this is what I think good looks like in the next year or two. And then there'll be another manifesto and we'll just tune it and tune it and tune it as we go along. Mm. But we've got to get the basics right. And if you don't get the basics right, it's interesting because I'm a great believer in if you can do the basics, the easy, the hard stuff comes really easily. And how yeah. many people try, don't do the basics. Mm. If you can get the basics right, everything else falls into place. Yeah. And so it was about getting the basics right, doing all the good things. Getting, you know, some of it was low-hanging fruit as well. Some of it wasn't too difficult, but it was about building confidence mm. as well and saying to people, we achieved this, we've done really well. Now, in my head, I was thinking, oh, it should be higher than that, but okay, look, Rome wasn't built in a day. I've got to give people something to hang on to, yeah. to think that they're being, you know, to believe that they're being successful so that we can move it forward and get to where we want to be in the long term. But it's, it's about taking steps along that road to Nirvana. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, and all that I think boils back down to your philosophy of transparency, isn't it? Of, of clarity and transparency across what it is you're looking to do. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, I think that's a very, very uh, great way to, uh, to to draw to a close. So um, I, I like, as you probably now know, end every podcast yep. by asking uh, one final question, if you'd be so kind. And Absolutely. that is, uh, throughout your career to date, would you say, or what would you say is your one favourite piece of advice um, that you've ever received that you'd like to, to pass on to your okay. I've got, fellow human? I've got two. Can I do two? Please do. Uh, something really struck me many years ago. When I, when I was working at Labrooks, Vernon's uh, Pools came under my governance, for a better way of putting it. And I went up, that was based in Liverpool near the Aintree racetrack, literally across the road from there. And... You had a really interesting organisation there. I mean, it turned over five million every year, um, but it was a really interesting business. Very, some very, very committed people there, and what they had was they you'd, you'd walk around the building and they'd have little posters up saying things. One of them really struck me, and I'd driven up there. I went up there in the day, so I'd driven four hours up there. I was leaving, and I saw it, and it said. We recognise that nobody comes to work to do a bad job. Mm. And I went, what about that? And I thought about it all the way back home. Mm. And I thought, it's so true. Yeah. Nobody comes to work. If you get that, you, you, you can't think everybody's an idiot. The whole thing is to say, nobody comes to work to do a bad job. People come here because they want to earn money, because they want to support their families, and they want to do the best that they can while they're here. Yeah. And I think that... 99% of people think that way. Yeah. You get the odd one or two that you can't do anything, you can't help them with. But in my career, I genuinely felt that. And it made me really, really think quite deeply about it all. And when I thought about it, I thought, yeah, absolutely true. Yeah. And, yeah. I, and I loved that. The other one, I thought, man, I've worked for some really good people in the past. I've worked for some absolute bloody nightmares as well, but we won't talk about them because <laughs> we've 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 learned to move on from those. Absolutely, we'll put those okay. in there. Yeah. But another thing I, I I learned as well is um, about staying, tr trying to stay, um, not to go too high, not to go too low. And what do I mean by that? And I learned this from. I can't believe I'm going to I've got the way I dragged this out from, but it's a Chinese culture called Taoism, but it's spelt Tao with, with the yes, T. Yes, okay. okay. Yeah, okay. And it was an old philosophy, and I and I read this years ago, and I thought this was really true, and it was about an old farmer, 3000 BC, something like that, a farmer in a Chinese village, and he had a horse, 
and he was seen as the richest guy in the, in the village. And one day the horse ran away and everybody said, it's a disaster. You've got no money, this is it. You've got, you're, you're, you're destitute. And he said, maybe. Two days later, the horse comes back with two wild horses. People say, you're the rich, this is fantastic. Look how lucky you are. You're the richest man in the world. You've got, in the village, sorry, not the world. In the village, you've got two, three horses now. How lucky are you? He said, maybe. A few days later, his son took out one of the horse, wild horses to try and train them, to, to break them. And his son fell off and broke his femur. Now, breaking your femur back in those days was almost like life-threatening. Mm. And they said, oh, this is terrible. You're, you are so unlucky. Your son's going to die. You know, this is so bad. You know, your son's so ill. He's broken his femur. He's like, he may well die. He said, maybe. A week later, the Chinese Imperial Army came in and took all the young men out of the village. He said, you're so lucky your son's still with you. And he said, maybe. And that is an important lesson because that during that period of time he had some really highs, he had some lows, but he just just tried to stay in the zone mm. to try and deal. What well, he might have had some inner turmoil, yeah, but he or he might have been pumping the air, but he was just trying to stay level mm. so that he could, yeah, okay, I'm lucky I've got those, but I do know things can change, yeah, and it's about. It's about really just trying to stay as level as you can and stay in the, stay in the right place. And you, you, you know, of course we get excited, of course we enjoy things, of course we get down, but don't go too high, don't go too low. Just try and, you know, just enjoy. Mm. I love that. Yeah, it's a great way to end because I, I, I actually had this exact thought yesterday that, you know, life is all relative, isn't it? Like, you, you know, you look at all the, the frustrations and the problems that you have on a daily basis and, you know, it's so easy to get worked up and stressed about them, but actually when you compare yourself to, you know, the next person walking down the road, you've always got so much you can be grateful for and so much you can be thankful yeah. for. And, uh, yeah, it's a similar similar phrase, but uh, one that I think, you know, I, I've definitely got a tendency. I'm quite a positive, upbeat yeah. person generally, but I have a tendency probably when it comes to myself and my own performance and that kind of thing to always look at the glass half empty. So yeah. one of the ones I... Uh, but, yeah, very similar to what you said there. But, is. but that's about you being. You, but that's what drives you, I think, because I think that's what you're. You, I'm. I'm a little bit similar, and I think it's about driving myself to say, I'm. I'm, I'm always striving for perf perf the perfection that I'll never achieve, mm. almost. Mm. And I think it's what drives you, and it keeps you in the zone because you're always yeah. looking to do better. You're curious. Yeah. I think it's about yeah. you curious, and you're trying to do better. I mean. Uh, the, the other way to look at it is there's nothing you can do about the past. The past has happened. All you can do is learn from it. And yeah. you can't worry about things that haven't happened yet. Mm. Very true. Very so true. you've got to, you know, you've got to say, well, maybe that'll happen. Maybe it won't happen. You know, there's so many, you know, you think, oh, well, I could, we could walk out of here today or I could go home. It could be a train crash. I could get run over. You know, you just got to be steady. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's uh the, the one I heard was uh, see things as they are, don't see them as worse than they are. Yeah. Because everyone, I think, has a tendency to always look at stuff as what, what could happen. Absolutely. But actually just look at it as what, what's going on right now and, Absol you know, and work with what we can. So, Absolutely, uh, yeah. Awesome. Well, Nick, thank you very much. Always a pleasure to speak to you and uh, very much enjoyed our, our conversations, as I always do. Um, 
I know we spoke about it before. There's quite a few areas we were hoping to build into this podcast, but I dare say we're going to have to invite you back to do another one at some point because we didn't even, didn't even get around to talking about uh, get 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 her autopilot. We didn't talk about autopilot, although I did mention it because that I think you know I mean that is a that is a fantastic way to get away with pair programming now, isn't it? Mm. And, uh, and listen, I'd love to come back and talk about OpenAI and ChatGPT. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, oh, sure. That's the next one. We'll, uh, we'll get that one booked in then. <laughs> fantastic. Thank you yeah. ever so much, Guy. I really appreciate the opportunity. No worries. Thanks for coming, and uh, we'll speak soon. Thank you.